Hey family, you know, we are in the midst of some hard times. And I think there's one thing that we need to recognize is that these times are not unique in the larger history of the United States. Um, you know, it's funny because the other day I was actually reading an article in the Washington Post and it was comparing 2020 to 1968. And the, while there were differences between the two years, the, there were a lot of great and interesting parallels and similarities. Both years dealt with a pandemic. Both years dealt with racial violence and tension. And in both years, it was a national election year. And while there are some key differences between 1968 and 2020, in reading the article, I am reminded of Ecclesiastes 1 and 9 that says that there's nothing new under the sun. Now, many of us weren't born in, in, in 1968. Some of us were. And, and those that were, some may not remember. But for others like my parents who are still alive, they remember 1968 all too well. But as we fast forward to today, we have to recognize that this is our time to address the issues of the day. And as Christians, we bear the responsibility to live out our faith in these times. And, and we have to live them out in a way that shows how the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, addresses every aspect of our lives. And the issues of racism and injustice are no exception. Over the past 10 days, many of us have, have heard that, that we just have to love each other. How many of you have heard that? How many of, how many of us have heard, man, if we just loved each other, then things would be better. But what does that mean? What does that statement mean to just love each other? And what does love look like? You see, last week, Pastor Philip gave some very practical steps regarding how to deal with injustice. He talked about catch up, look up, keep up, and stand up. And if you missed that message, I, I would recommend that you go back and listen to that message. Uh, he, he, dropped some, he dropped some dimes on there. But today, I want to address what God has to say about what it means to love. And as we look at the passage that we're going to discuss, we're going to see what not to do, but we'll also see, more importantly, what to do. And then we're going to discuss some practical steps that all of us can take. So today we're going to read the text and I want to read it in its entirety before we break it down. We're going to go to Luke chapter 10 and we're going to read verses 25 through 37. And it says here, then an expert in the law stood up to test him, him being Jesus, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? He, being the expert, said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, 
brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Now, many of us may have heard the term the Good Samaritan. Being the Good Samaritan, we have laws that are Good Samaritan laws. And, and this is where we actually find that, that, that term of the Good Samaritan in this parable that Jesus gives. But we also see a conversation about the great commandment. We see it in Luke uh, chapter, in Luke 20, verse 27. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Here, the expert quotes Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. But as we look at the larger picture within this text, we see that the way we define our neighbor redefines how we love God. In other words, the great commandment is centered on love, love of God and love of our neighbors. You see it on T-shirts. It sounds good that love God, love people. We say it all the time, but we need to recognize that it is hard. That, that it sounds easy, but it's hard. So we need to be reminded that in order to love God properly, we need to have a proper understanding of what it means to love our neighbor. This means that our hearts need to be aligned with what God wants and what about what God cares about. So what does God care about? Well, he cares about people. He cares about justice and he cares about righteousness. See, we're in a position to walk out our doctrine every day, and we do it with people who don't look like us or experience the things that we may experience. And we have the opportunity to be a living epistle, a picture of the good news of Jesus in a society that is suffering and hurting and pain. And guess what? We can do something. So, so if that's the case, what is love? Well, I, I, I look at love like this. Love is what happens when compassion and conviction meet. Let me say that again. Love is what happens when, love, when compassion and conviction meet. So what do I mean by this? I mean that compassion feels. Compassion feels, but conviction does. This is love. This is a picture of love. And this is actually the essence of the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus not only, God not only had compassion for the, his creation, but he had the conviction to do something as we were alienated from him. And we need to understand that because this is a matter of life and death, literally, as we're dealing with these issues in the country, we're talking about issues of life and death. There has to be a sense of urgency that compels compassion into action. And what we find out is only conviction drives action. Love is what happens when compassion and conviction meet. And as a whole, when we look at this passage, we see love being displayed. So if that's the case, then what is the problem? Well, here's the problem. We see it in verse 29. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You know, it's interesting because what he's actually asking a deeper question. He's asking, who do I get to love? 
And how far does my love have to extend? Now, this is like the first what not to do. What not to do is we, we, we don't get to set the conditions of love and neighborliness. Now, as a church, and, and, and I want us to see this because I want us to be able to get a feel of what is happening, what is going on, and how do we respond? Because for many of us, we might be getting phone calls from friends that are saying, I don't know what to do. There might be people that are, that are wrestling with, with the, 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 the conversation about racism and injustice, and we have a unique opportunity to be able to live this out as a multi-ethnic faith and community. And that's the beautiful thing about, uh, about life at Radiant. But I want us to be able to dig in and unpack this right here about the first what not to do is set the conditions of love and neighborliness as this expert wanted to do. See, we don't have that right. Only the Lord does. And, and, the, and the problem with racism, what makes racism so evil, is that it honestly tries to define a role of human worth that belongs to God and him alone. Only God gets to define human worth, and he already did in his word when he said, let us make man in our image, in the Imago Dei. So when we try to take the role and responsibility of God by assigning human value through racism, we have an idol. And the reality is racism is idolatry. And as Christians, we need to recognize that. So notice how Jesus answers and addresses the question, it's, because this is one of the great things about Jesus, that Jesus doesn't just flat out say. What he does, he does it in the form of a parable. And Jesus used parables to communicate the mysteries of the kingdom in a language and context that people can understand. So if he's talking about kingdom principles, you got to recognize that Jesus is coming as a king. He is discussing this with his king authority as king. He is speaking as a king. So he talks about this unidentified man who is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this trip, and it talks about being down because the trip from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles, and it literally descended down a mountain pass, and it had about a a 3,000-foot drop in elevation, and it was actually a dangerous route. Criminals would hide behind rocks and, and the big boulders, and they would jump out and attack and rob travelers. So for people to understand this road, they understood it was a dangerous road. And true to the context of this, of this journey, of this road, a man, this man here that we don't know he is, he's the unidentified man, is robbed, beaten, and left for dead. And in that situation, we have three people who come to the scene of the crime. Now, the first two, you see the priest. The priest is the highest Jewish religious official. They're the one who is responsible for interpreting the law and officiating in the temple. This dude was in charge of making sure worship went down. The Levite handled the task of worship in the temple and its operation, and they assisted the priests in their duties. They're like they're they're heading the worship team. Now, the text does not talk about the motive, about why they passed by. So we don't know their motivation for passing this man who's on the side of the road. But maybe it was out of fear. Maybe they were afraid that they could get robbed, too. Maybe they were afraid they just didn't know what to do. Maybe it could be the fear that if they touched them, they would be rendered unclean based on the law. Or maybe helping the man would have inconvenienced them. 
that they were too busy to have to deal with it because they had somewhere they had to go. They had a deadline to be at a certain place at a certain time. We don't know what it was, but here's what we do know. The priest and the Levite are like many of us. They go to church. They got great worship. They have right theology and doctrine. And at the same time, ignore those around them who are suffering. You see, the priest and the Levite lack the compassion to feel the man suffering and honestly lack the conviction to do the right thing. In other words, they failed the love test. They did nothing. But in doing nothing, they showed us what not to do. The good news is there's a third person, the Samaritan. Now, we cannot miss the importance of Jesus using the Samaritan as the hero in this story. It is important because the Jews hated the Samaritans. And that, that hatred was born out of a historical and ethnic context. So going back, when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, many Israelites were exiled from the land and some remained. And so at the same time, the Assyrians would bring in captives from other lands into Israel and many Jews intermarried with them. And the Samaritans were the descendants of those intermarriages. In other words, it became a, a cultural issue. They were hated and that hatred was strong by the Jews. There was a, there was a, there was a, a legitimate, a clear hatred between Jews and Samaritans. We see it also again addressed in, in John chapter 4 when Jesus talks and meets with the woman at the well. But this, these, these, this, this hatred and these differences were due to ethnic, cultural, and theological differences. So to a Jewish audience, get this, Jesus using a Samaritan as the hero strikes to the heart of deconstructing the expert's view of who is the neighbor. Now, this, 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 this expert in the law, mind you, he's, he's an expert. It's like a, a lawyer. This dude knows the law. He knows the, the scriptures, and he knows what Deuteronomy says and what Leviticus says. But Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue by deconstructing his view of a neighbor. He tried to use the law to dictate who his neighbor was. Jesus is deconstructing that. And it should deconstruct our view as well. See, what you see here is the Samaritan entered into the pain of the man and he entered into the man's, the man's problem. In other words, his problem, that man's problem, the victim's problem, became the Samaritan's problem. This, see, this is what love looks like. This is a practical application of what love looks like. In other words, this is what happens when compassion and conviction meet. Because what we see in the text, it said, he came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. But what did he do next? He went over to him and bandaged his wounds. He put him as on an animal. He took care of him. And then he went to the, the innkeeper and said, hey, whatever debt is incurred, I'm going to take care of it. So here's what it looks like. This is what the Samaritan did. He did not make excuses as to why he couldn't help. He took a dying man and he rendered aid. He provided care without cost to the suffering man. And he was willing to cover any debt on behalf of that man if necessary. Jesus is laying it down, but then he asks a pointed question to the, to the expert. Which one do you think proved to be a neighbor? Now, the expert recognized that Jesus just completely destroyed his concept of a neighbor. It's kind of funny when I, when I even as I think about this, you know, a lot of times on social media, you see a sound clip and someone says, 
so-and-so completely destroyed somebody's argument. And then you click on it and you really realize and listen to it and you're like, nah, not really. It just sounds good. But here in the text, first of all, because it's Jesus driving to the truth in the heart of the law and driving to the heart of what it means to apply the law, he, he totally deconstructed. So if we were to do this, this would be a clip on social media saying Jesus totally destroys the, law the lawyer's view on being a neighbor. And here's how we know that that was the case. Because when Jesus asked that question, the expert said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus, as king, says, go and do likewise. You see, mercy and compassion is the marker of being a neighbor. It's about pursuing the well-being and the good of the others. It's about compassion. It's about seeking justice and righteousness. And it reflects the love of God that transcends cultural and racial barriers. In other words, this is when right practice reflects right doctrine. When the two meet, we see this. And what we see here in this text is that love gets dirty. This is a form of activism right here. It gets dirty. And here's the key part. In other words, if we look at this further, when we are willing to become unclean in order to demonstrate love, mercy, and compassion, that is when we most reflect our Lord, our Savior, and our King. So what do we do? How can we do this? How can we walk out God's terms for love? Well, I have three points of application, and they're really three Ps. The first P is prayer. Prayer. Now, that sounds really cliche. That's, you know, we hear that all the time. You know, we just got, if we just prayed more. And it's true. But here's the reason why prayer is the foundational part of it. Prayer is the foundation of walking out love because before our bodies can be right, our hearts have to be right. Prayer changes and works on the disposition of our heart. So it does two things. Prayer does two key things. The first thing it does is it prevents othering people. It prevents creating categories where we see people as the enemy. And here's a reality check. If you have a problem with somebody, if you have a, a, a beat with somebody, and you and like even the mere say of their name, the, the, the hearing of their name or anything, that if you see them scrolling on the timeline, if you haven't blocked them or anything, it, if it creates a visceral reaction, pray for them. And watch what it does. It, it, it changes the way we see them. In other words, it's hard to, to hate people you're praying for. It's hard to otherize and see them as, 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 as the enemy or as those people. It, it, what it does is when we pray for others, we're asking God to teach us to see people the way that he sees them. And if God cares about people, then we should too. That's part of it. But for some of us, that might be our category that, that we, 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 we have a distance with people. And so we, we have a tendency to otherize people. Whatever that may look like in, in your particular context, we have that, that sometimes we'll do that. But prayer does another thing for a lot, of us, a lot of us that we have to navigate. And that is prayer prevents bitterness and resentment in our hearts. Now, if I could be real with you, all these events 
as I've been processing and I've been having calls with people asking me what to do and, and how can they help, how can they get involved, or just, just talking with pastors and other pastors and ministry leaders and people in, on, on sports teams and coaches and everybody else, team chaplains, I, I, I wrestle with the, 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 the scope of emotions. That I've had to process anger, I've had to process cynicism, I've had to process grief, I've had to process all of these things together. But what prayer does because of that, it prevents bitterness and resentment in our hearts. I could go back and look at the Rodney King beating. I can go back and see Philando Castile. I can go back and see Amadou Diallo. I can go back and see so many others, John Crawford and, and Eric Garner. I can go back and see so many Charleston, the mother Emmanuel. I can go back and see all these things. And if I do not have my heart checked with the heart of God, I can grow bitterness. I can grow resentment. I can grow hatred. But when I spend time with God, asking him to see, how do you see people? And what do you care about that creates a guardrail for my heart that prevents bitterness and resentment? And what ends up happening is I, it, it provides an outpouring of love and resolve to honor God even in this. See, what prayer does, it allows us to pray for the good of others. Now, what does that mean? Practically, if we were to look at our prayers, praying for others that might cause us bitterness or resentment means that we will pray for them the things that we would pray for ourselves. So would we pray their, for their good? Or would we be like, Lord, just strike them with lightning? Because some of us be like that. Our hearts are not in the right position. But when we pray for the things for them that we would ask for ourselves, it does something to our heart. So prayer is like the GPS system that gets us at the right place so that we can travel in the right direction. So it, it, as, a, as a whole, prayer deals with the heart, but it doesn't stop there. See, if we stop here at prayer, we've already missed God's heart. We've already missed the boat. We've already missed the idea of what can we do next. That's the first part. Do not, do not miss this point right here. It is the first point. But the other two deal with the body. So if the first P is prayer, the second P is proximity. What does your dinner table look like? Or more importantly, who is invited to your dinner table? See, this idea is that, that we want to live near and be close. Now, I want to I give a caveat here that we're not talking about surface level friendly neighborliness. Or in some instances, and what the danger that we see even in this situation here is, is that we can see those who are dealing with, with injustice as charity cases to be helped. That is not what we're talking about here. When we're talking about proximity, we're talking about building friendships and relationships as equals. In other words, we are relocating ourselves into the lives of others so that we can share in their needs. One of my favorite theologians, he is, is uh, a man by the name of, of Dr. John M. Perkins. I, I love him. If you ever get a chance, man, I, would really get a, I would really encourage you, read his books. He's got some really great books, a really great testimony. He's like, he's 93 years old, and he shows a picture of what, what conviction and compassion looks like. And he, he's, he created this model of Christian community development. It was three R's. 
And the first one being reconciliation. The second one, and I want to talk just for this piece, a relocation. Um, and I won't, I won't get into the, the third one just because of time and everything. But he talks about this idea of relocation, that we relocate ourselves into the lives of those that we're going to do life with. And so what ends up happening is, is when you do that, it cannot be a charity case because you're sharing in the same needs. That your problem is my problem and my problem is your problem. And together we will walk this thing out for the glory of God and the good of our communities. See, what, 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 what proximity does is it, it changes those people to my friends. So if you have prayer and you're, and you're developing a heart of compassion, proximity says it puts a name and a face and a family to the people that you're praying for. And when you see their needs, they become your needs. And here's a perfect example because one of the things that I say is that we have, we have a beautiful demographic at Radiant. And, and, I, and, I, and I, even on social media, I say to some of my friends, you know, you're hearing for some people about the idea of the talk. That as a parent, I'm a, I'm a parent of teenagers, that, that I have to continually give the talk about how to relate to the police of getting pulled over. My oldest son is about to get his driver's license. He already has his permit. We have to have the talk. And to my white brothers and sisters and, and other friends that are actually adopting cross-ethnically, that they're entering into the cause by, by proximity, that now my problem with my sons become their problems. That that is a practical way to live that out. And so we want to be able to understand that we're in this together. So, but before we can do that in the world, it starts within the household of faith. It starts within the body of Christ. Proximity within the body of Christ should lead to proximity elsewhere. So when we live out our, living, our loving relationships with our neighbors, here's what will happen. When we love well, when compassion and conviction meet, the loss will take notice. In other words, loving our neighbor is a key aspect of Christian witness. And it is one of the greatest forms of apologetics we can do. Lifestyle apologetics by proclaiming the love of God to the people all over the world as by the people of God. And we show the world who Jesus is. And Jesus cares about people. He cares about justice. And he cares about righteousness. Proximity changes our disposition. So I want to give you this African proverb, and it said this, when I saw you from afar, I thought you were a monster. But when you got closer, I thought you were just an animal. When you got even closer, I saw that you were human. But when we were face to face, I realized that you were my brother. Proximity allows us to enter into the problems and sufferings of others. Your problems become my problems. And because I love you and you love me, we will deal with them together. So when we see this idea of entering into suffering, it's the heart of the gospel message. So in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, this is, and listen to this first part, especially, especially dig into this first part, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. 
Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus got close. Jesus got close. That is the beauty of the incarnation, that, that God steps into human flesh. God, Jesus is fully God, and he's fully human, and, and he took his power as God, and he entered it into the sufferings of humanity so that we could be made right with him. This is what happens when conviction and compassion meet. We see the beauty of the gospel at play. So we have prayer, we have proximity, but there's a third P. And this is participation. This is the active step, uh, the third active step that we can do. And here's what happens, really. We, we, we have to turn our protests, our social media activism, we have to turn them into substantial change. And we have to take on the burden of being directly involved in working for that change. See, when you have a biblical example of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, then you will live, you will speak, and you will act for that good. You will speak against the things that dehumanize your fellow image bearers. And in many cases, we have to think about this. In some of these cases, those, those image bearers are also our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to do something. But I recognize that this part can be overwhelming. And I, I noticed that even in the conversations I've been having within the last 10 days or so, because people don't know where to start. Well, I'm going to give you an easy point. Start where you are. Start where you live, where you work, and where you play. I had a conversation recently, and I think one of the things that we're finding out in athletics, in the athletic world, is this dynamic of, of coaches typically live in isolation. I, I remember that as a college coach that we were, we, we, the, our, even our facilities were isolated from the rest of campus. And our student athletes had to live on both sides of that. And so one of the things that, that I remember as a student athlete, and I know others experience as student athlete, depending on your school, and, and in some cases, it's even worse than others, that you deal with racism and injustice in some really crazy ways. And I learned that especially as a, as a chaplain, um, just hearing the stories of some of the things that some of our student athletes had to deal with outside of, of our athletic, of the athletic world. And so what ends up happening is, is that coaches have no idea what's going on, but at the same time, it's like, well, what do I do? Well, here's what you can do. You can fight for people where you live, work, and play. So if you're a teacher at a public school in the area and you know things are happening, they, there's a disproportionate number of suspensions for, for minority kids versus other kids, you can do something about that. That's a very practical step. If there are issues, if you're an HR person and there are issues of hiring practices, you can do something about that. That you have a place right where you are to affect change in a way that honors God and restores the dignity of people that you work, that you work with, live with, play with at the gym or wherever. And what happens is as your proximity deepens, so we go back to that P before, because we're entering to the lives of people, as your proximity deepens, your level of participation will naturally deepen. But you need to start with where you are. 
identify where injustice takes place and address it there. But here's what I want you to remember. You can do something. Everybody can do something. So guess what you got to do? You got to do something. So Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9, it says, Speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. If you're a teacher, be an advocate for your students. Just one example. If you're a physician, be an advocate for your patients. If you're a nurse, be an advocate for your patients. If you're a police officer, be an advocate for your community. Whatever you do, be an advocate right where you are, where you live, work, and play. So where do we go from here? How do we, as I proverbially say in the message, we're about to land this plane. It, it is definitely a challenge to be radiant during times like this. But this is the time where the world needs it the most. If we are called to follow Jesus, then this means that we have to take up our crosses and bear it. How we do compassion, how we do conviction, how we merge the two, it is literally an issue of life and death and eternity hangs in the balance. There are people who are saying when people are dying in the street, what good is this Jesus if the church and the people who call the fleet followers of Jesus don't do anything? Life and death are hanging in the balance and therefore eternity hangs at the balance. We have to do something. And Jesus gives us the last part in the text, our marching orders. When the experts said, when Jesus asked which one of these three proved to be the neighbor, and that man said, the one who showed mercy to him, Jesus told him it was his marching orders and it's our marching orders as just as the same. Go and do the same. When compassion and conviction meet, we will find love and mercy in action. 